Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 218. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm looking at a couple of movies that became very, very successful television series. Though I like the movies a lot more than I like the TV series. The first one is from 1968 and it's Neil Simon's The Odd Couple starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. And then we go to 1970 for Robert Altman's MASH starring Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland. They're both very funny movies and there's a lot to say about them so i will get on with the contact details now and then we can start talking about cinema paleo cinema podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation there's only one rule and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old and i have to like them I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around, unless you have incredibly hip children. Hi, how's everybody been? Uh, Doing a shout out right at the start of the podcast to our friend Davey Mack in Texas, who's a little bit affected by the um, hurricane that's blowing through there right at this moment. Uh, I did do a contact with Dave via Facebook, and he tells me he's got everything he needs to weather the storm. But uh, shout out to Dave anyway. He's a good friend of the podcast and a nice guy. I'm going to get him on with a future episode, if allowing that the infrastructure in his area survives the hurricane. But um, our thoughts are with you, mate. So, yeah, how has everybody else been? Uh, We've been kind of doing some stuff around here. Uh, As I mentioned previously, I'm no longer working, and I'm not sure how that's going to pan out into the future. But at the moment, I'm just chilling out, getting all my ducks lined up. I'm going to the gym. I'm trying to eat better. Sal and I did a trip up to Sydney to visit the family for a few days and we stopped off at the nation's capital Canberra and spent some time there and caught up with a few friends which is always a lovely thing to do and it's um, a kind of life affirming and, and reassuring thing to do as well then we went up and visited family and caught up with a good friend Bruce Creevy up in Sydney and Bruce I'm going to get onto a future podcast because Bruce works for Animal Logic the people that do all of the ape stuff for the Planet of the Apes movie so I'm looking forward to getting Bruce onto a future podcast it'll probably be Martian Drive-In rather than this one but he's a lovely guy and I've known him for a long time you know we kind of dipped in and out of each other's lives a little bit but uh, he's a lovely guy he knows his stuff and it'll be good to talk to him about what he actually does um so yeah we did that uh this weekend we spent an overnight trip up on the murray river and went to a place called Echuca, which is on the largest river in the country the murray now if you don't live in australia it sounds impressive to say the largest river in the continent in the country but the murray isn't all that long and it isn't all that wide and uh, but uh, is a nice place so Sal and I stayed there overnight and had some lovely food and chilled out and uh, bought some things including and this is increasingly happening and I think it's to do with the changes in technology uh, there are a lot of DVDs going cheaply in various stores including an antique shop which had a whole rack of I think X 
rental DVDs sitting at the front of the store. So I picked up a few things. I picked up a copy, of which I hadn't had, of the Glenn Miller story and Harvey, the two Jimmy Stewart movies in a double pack. I picked up a copy of Cannibal Run, the movie with... Um, Burt Lancaster and Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, all sorts of people like that in there, which is kind of cool. And um, yeah, I bought a few other bits and pieces and had a good time. We also found some of my current obsession collecting, which is Funko Pop vinyl figures. I uh, picked up a few of those there. It doesn't matter how small the country town you go to. You can always find a place that sells Funko Pops. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing, but uh, they're ubiquitous. So we had a, a little time in there. It's still wintry here, and it was quite cold where we were, but uh, we rugged up and um, had a good time, played cards against humanity in the evening and just chilled out. So life is an interesting time. It's a little bit different, and I keep having this subconscious idea that I'm going back to work in a week or two weeks or three weeks, and that ain't the case. So I've got to kind of rejig how I see myself and rejig how I see my life. Um, I'm going to do a lot more catching up with friends than I'd have in the past because when you're kind of working full time and kind of tired with that and you've got other obligations which I won't go into, uh, you don't really get the time to socialize as much as you'd like to. But I'm going to do a lot more of that because I think that that's where my future lies, catching up with friends, doing things, getting people onto the fucking podcast as well. I really need to do a lot more of that, which I've neglected, but which I enjoy a lot. Uh, it's probably an organisational thing. When I was working full-time, I was getting up very early in the morning and getting home reasonably late at night. And so there wasn't all that much energy left to uh, get things organised. As you heard just then, I've redone the intro to Paleo Cinema with the contact details. So I've got to really get my shit together and do that. But I'm still in the phase of kind of enjoying the leisure time and working out how I want to structure my not working so as i said it's an interesting time it's a weird time but i have had time to watch a few things as well not many since the last time i produced a podcast because as i said we had that little bit of a time away and i've been chilling out with a bunch of things but um, i have watched a couple of things which are kind of interesting i did watch the 1986 uh science fiction horror comedy film directed by fred decker uh night of the creeps which is a lot of fun it's got tom atkins in it um jason lively and nobody else you've really heard of very much uh it's about a whole bunch of kind of black space maggots or space slugs or space leeches that invade a college town it's very 1980s it's that vhs era kind of a movie i actually wrote a review of it so if you go to patreon.com slash paleo cinema you can read my review of night of the creeps i want to do more of that kind of stuff so i was kind of dipping my toes in and just getting my feel of how to do a review it's a skill i want to increase my abilities with um that didn't make sense, but you know what I mean. And uh, I'm going to do more reviews in the future, more written reviews. So I'll put that up there, and uh, it was a lot of fun to watch. I picked it up really cheaply while we were away in Sydney on Blu-ray. I think I paid like five bucks for it on Blu-ray. And so I watched that and uh, enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. It's right up there with a lot of the fun VHS-era movies from the 1980s that are in the same kind of genre. I do want to get a copy of Night of the Comet because that's a fun one as well. 
but I haven't yet. Now, the other thing I watched is um, an Ivan Tors movie from the 1950s called Riders to the Stars, which doesn't star anybody particularly. It's a science fiction thing um, where they tried to keep the science as realistic as they could, and it's set before people actually went into orbit. And the scientists discover that cosmic rays weaken steel, but they want to find out why things like meteorites don't get weakened by the cosmic rays. And so they have a mission in three rockets to capture a meteorite in orbit before the whatever's coating it burns up in the atmosphere and find out about it. And it's all about how do you recruit astronauts, how do you get them to... How do you train them? Uh, the psychological stuff there and the physical stuff. It's got people like Herbert Marshall in it and um, William Lundigan and also Richard Carlson from Creature from the Black Lagoon who actually directed the film as well. It's kind of low budget, but they, it's hearts in the right place. It was part of the Office of Scientific Investigation series that um, was done by Ivan Tor's company in the 1950s. The other ones being the Monolith Monsters and GOG. They're great 1950s kind of diesel punk science fiction. And I kind of enjoyed watching that. It's on YouTube, as indeed are crazy amounts of 1940s, 1950s, and even into 1960s science fiction films. If you do a bit of a search on YouTube, I'm not sure about the legality of them or not, but they're there. And if you want to watch some old retro kind of creature feature era science fiction and horror films, there are a shit ton of them on youtube at the moment so avail yourself of those if you want to um it'll use up your bandwidth but it's um a lot of fun to do now the, the, that's pretty much all i've been watching i've been watching some youtube videos but i've been doing other things as well living life and, and getting out and about and doing things going to the gym sweating um doing cardio and weights and all that kind of thing and it's paying off i'm starting to shape up a little bit the soft edges of my body are a little less soft but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying that, even though there are times when you don't want to go, but I force myself and uh, it's paying some dividends for me. By the way, my big new 4K 55-inch TV hasn't arrived yet. It should be being sent at the end of August, and I should have it by the next time I do a podcast with a bit of luck, and I'll have everything set up for the big 55-inch 4K experience in the viewing area of the house. Uh, Sally and I decided we were going to watch Guardians of the Galaxy 2 on Blu-ray to um, crack a champagne bottle over the new TV set. Looking forward to that. It should be a lot of fun to watch movies that large. And um, it was quite inexpensive as well, which is the other good side of it. But uh, anyway, I'm going to take a break now. And when I get back... I'm going to do these in chronological order. We're going to look at the adaptation of Neil Simon's Broadway play The Odd Couple from 1968, directed by Gene Sachs and starring Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, amongst other people. And I'll talk about the other people in the movie as well. So I'll take that break and uh, then we'll start talking comedy. What's wrong, Oscar? Something wrong with this system, that's what's wrong. I don't think that two single men living alone in a big eight-room apartment should have a cleaner house than my mother. Starring Jack Lemmon. A hypochondriac. A fuss budget. Neater than neat. Cleaner than clean. No wonder his wife kicked him out. 
<laughs> Stop that, will you? What are you doing? I'm trying to clear up my ears. <laughs> Did it open up? Uh -huh. I think I strained my throat. <laughs> Walter Matthau. Another guy whose wife left him. And his pad looks like she left it a long time ago. Who wants food? What do you got? I got uh, brown sandwiches and uh, green sandwiches. Which one do you want? What's the green? See, the very new cheese or very old meat. I'll take the brown. Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau, who try to enjoy all possible delights of a shared bachelor apartment. Yeah, oh, yes, uh, bowling. Bowling is a wonderful exercise, Felix, but uh, that's, uh, that's not the kind of relaxation I had in mind. I mean, the night was made for other things. Like what? Like unless I get to touch something soft in the next two weeks, I'm in big trouble. They're together, bringing to all America the laughter of Neil Simon's Broadway smash hit. <laughs> oh, this is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> and ever so much cooler than our place. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, it's like equatorial Africa on our side of the building. Well, last night it was so bad, Gwen and I sat there in nature's own, cooling ourselves in front of the open fridge. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, I'm working at it. <laughs> <laughs> you had your chance to talk last night. I beg you to come upstairs with me. If you want to live here, I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to smell you cooking. Now, kindly remove that spaghetti from my poker tape. It's not spaghetti, it's linguine. <laughs> now it's garbage. The Odd Couple is a 1968 American comedy movie starring Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. It's based on a 1965 play by Neil Simon, which was originally put on Broadway starring Matthau and Art Carney, but at the time, Hollywood considered Art Carney wasn't box office, so they got Jack Lemmon in. Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau have been fantastic together three years before in a movie, or two years before, in a movie called The Fortune Cookie, which had a lot of problems, one of which was Walter Matthau had a major heart attack in the middle of production, they had to delay production, and so the scenes shot later show a 30-pound lighter Walter Matthau in them. But leaving that aside, um, fantastically successful. The origin of the play is kind of disputed. One person says that it was based on Neil Simon um, breaking up his first marriage and living with a friend in Hollywood. The other one, which is part of Mel Brooks's autobiography by James Robert Parrish, says that the play came out after Neil Simon observed um, Mel Brooks having separated from his first wife and living with a friend called Speed Vogel for three months. Vogel said that Brooks had insomnia and paranoia and blood sugar problems and it was a nightmare to live with him. Whatever the origin, the play was crazy successful. So there was no way they were not going to make a movie of it. And so they did. There have been a number of other adaptations, of course. There was the, the movie, 1968, the TV series starring Tony Randall and Jack Klugman, which people remember fondly, between 1970 and 1975. 
There was a 1975 cartoon series made by De Patty Freelang, and there were a cat and a dog named Spiffy and Fleabag. There was a 1982 and 1983 version of it uh, with black cast, including Ron Glass as Felix and Demon Wilson as Oscar. There was also a 2015 sitcom with Matthew Perry and Thomas Lennon, which I haven't seen. Some of the cast from Play Effect moved over into the movie. John Fiedler, who plays Vinnie, one of the card players, card-playing friends of Oscar and Felix, came over, as did the Pigeon Sisters, who are the two girls, or two women, sorry, who live in the apartment building that uh, Oscar and Felix live in. Uh, they were played by Monica Evans and Carol Shelley. They moved over from the play, and they're fantastic in it. Their characters are called Cecily and Gwendolyn, which is a little bit hilarious if you know the importance of being earnest, because the two female lead roles in the importance of being earnest were Cecily and Gwendolyn. Neil Simon says that it was purely coincidental that he called the characters that, but um, you know, I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. And we're probably not going to get Neil Simon to tell us that because unfortunately he is suffering at the moment from Alzheimer's disease, and that, that's horrible. He is ninety, but still, it, it's a, a terrible thing to be living with. But we'll step aside from that cheery note and talk about the movie a bit more. Uh, everybody knows the plot. Um, Oscar Madison's a sports writer. He's a slob. He's um, divorced and he's living in a quite a large apartment by himself in New York. Every week he has his friends over for a card game. One of them is uh, Felix Unger. The others are Herb Edelman playing Murray, a cop. Uh, John Fiedler playing Vinnie. David Shona playing Roy. And Larry Haynes playing Speedy. Uh, as the movie starts, we hear that really cool music from Neil Hefty, uh, who's... Yeah, this is kind of like iconic New York comedy music, Neil Hefty's theme for The Odd Couple. He actually won an Emmy for it on television. But uh, Hefty himself had an interesting career. He was in Woody Herman's band as a trumpet player. And he'd previously done a number of really cool albums, including an album with Sinatra. He did the theme for Batman, um, which most people remember. And yeah, he had a kind of light touch and a, a really cool style about him. Apparently very well regarded in the industry. He was well liked as a mu- musician. And um, any Neil Hefty soundtrack you hear, and there are a number of them, is very distinctive. There's nothing kind of copying or emulating other people's style. And he really does um, bring his own nature to the music he does. So at the start you hear Neil Hefty's music and you see uh, Jack Lemmon's Felix walking through the streets of New York looking somewhat dejected. A lot of it's filmed live in location which is kind of cool because you get to see a bit more of New York in the 1960s there. He books into a cheap hotel somewhere in Times Square I think and asks for a high up room um, with the intention of committing suicide. His marriage is just broken down. He decides he's going to jump out of a window. Unfortunately, because it's a cheap hotel room, he can't get the window open and does his back trying to open the window. So he slouches around and ends up at the apartment of Oscar Madison, who offers to let his friends stay there. But whereas Oscar's a slob and kind of relaxed and interesting um, character. I like Oscar a lot more than I like Felix because I'm much more Oscar than Felix myself. 
But uh, he starts tidying up the house. He cleans obsessively in the middle of the night. He has some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, which isn't specifically addressed in the movie because I'm not sure it was diagnosed as a disorder at that stage. But um, he, he cooks meals for them. He starts acting like a wife in some ways when Oscar isn't uh, there on time or doesn't call him to say he's going to be late. Felix gets... Um, disheartened by this and they end up incredibly antagonistic to each other in the meantime they meet the pigeon sisters which is an interesting name because both of them kind of coo like pigeons when they laugh played by Monica Evans and Carol Shelley and they decide to double date and um, Felix decides he's going to cook them a meal in the apartment in order to save money because Oscar's way behind on his alimony. They both need to save money for their alimony, which Oscar does get up to date with, which is great. He's doing his bit as a father. But um, they have a very unusual dinner date with the Pigeon Sisters. Did a bit of research on the actors too. Monica Evans stopped acting in um, 1973 and um, she married a BBC One radio DJ called Dave Cash. And uh, they were married up until 2010. They're both still alive. Um, and they're both, you know, racked up a few birthdays by this stage. But uh, Carol Shelley's an interesting one. She's still acting and she's um, become very famous on stage. She, um, in 2003, she was Madame Morrible in the original Broadway cast of the musical Wicked. Uh, she was in Billy Elliot. She'd done Absurd Person Singular and won a Tony Award for it in 1975. She was Mrs. Kendall in the original stage version of The Elephant Man, so she's had this terrific stage career, but um, hasn't done a hell of a lot of movies. And both of them are, are marvellous in this, and you fall a little bit in love with the Pigeon Sisters and a little bit in lust as well um, watching this, if you're at all in any way inclined the same way I am. And I like them too because they're two um, women who've come to, two sisters who've come to America from the UK, of course, and are living their life on their own terms. They're out dating, they're having a good time, they're irrepressibly cheerful, except when they encounter Felix. And I won't do too much of a spoiler on that part. But they're kind of living life on their own terms and um, they're wicked and they got a filthy sense of humor and they're a lot of fun to be with they're not necessarily manic magic pixie girls but they're kind of earthy women with a great sense of humor and they two actors give each of them an individual character even though people get Cicely and um, the other one's name mixed up they really do each of them have um, their own characters and their own sense of humor and of course they lived in roles too because they did it so long on stage as indeed did Mathab, he um, did drop out and he was replaced, oddly enough, by Jack Klugman um, later in the, in the run of the play. Nonetheless, because some of the actors, John Fiedler, the Two Pigeon Sisters, and Walter Mathau played the roles before, they really feel inhabited and completed. The, all of the rough edges are smoothed off them. It's not that they've become boring, but they, they're much more lived in than Jack Lemmon's um, Felix is. Now, Jack Lemmon's good as Felix. He's got the thing with the sinuses and the hypochondria and the slow burn anger. And um, there's some very emotional scenes in there as well during the dating. And Lemon pulls them off. Lemon's a, a fantastic actor. And he pulls off the emotional arcs that Felix goes through 
really well. Uh, and his skill with physical comedy holds him in good stead in this as well. But the movie ultimately, which surprised me a little rewatching it, I'd seen it, I think, in the cinema when I was a kid. It was on one of those Saturday matinees I saw as a kid. I'm not sure why they bothered putting them on the Saturday matinees, but they did. And I remember that really great line about green sandwiches and brown sandwiches being one of the funniest things in the movie for me at the time. But the thing that I really recognise seeing it now is it's about a couple of men reaching some kind of emotional maturity, which is kind of cool and it's not a theme that you expect from a 1960s comedy. You expect a lot more sexism than there is. There's a little bit that there's not too much in there but no more than any comedy of the time had. But um, you get Oscar getting his shit together as far as um, looking after his finances and keeping his payments for his alimony up to date and, and maintaining his life. And also, in spite of all of the character differences, acknowledging the bromance between him and Felix. And you get Felix getting his shit together as well, where he stops living in the tragedy of his divorce and starts on that path to getting his shit together by moving out of the apartment with Oscar and nonetheless finding you know, the first steps of the rest of his life. And that's kind of an interesting thing. And it gives the comedy and gives a movie a depth that it might not otherwise have had. There have been there are a number of comedies of the time which are kind of flippant and um, happy and merry and, and comedic, but don't have that underlying kind of spine of emotional truth to them. But this one definitely does. I think it's some of Neil Simon's best work for that reason. I like the fact that because men in the 21st century these days are much more able to talk about their feelings and much more able to manage them and deal with them and integrate them into their lives and see where acknowledging your feelings and um, understanding them gets you to a better life. This movie from 1968 and the play from 1965 says those things. And that was really unexpected for me. I didn't, uh, I knew what the rough plot of the movie was, but I really didn't see that heart to it until viewing it the other day. And I really was surprised and delighted to see that. Um, I picked up this movie. I'll tell you how it turned up to be uh, this movie ended up in the podcast. I was in Sydney scrounging around a place called Sex CEX, not SEX which is, stands for Computer Exchange. It's a shop in Sydney, a franchise in shopping centres that sells compu- um, used computer games and used DVDs and Blu-rays and computer hardware as well, second-hand. And I was prowling through. It might have been either in Sydney or Canberra because CEX is also in Sydney and Canberra. But I was trolling through there and looking through the movies that they had and there's a lot of ordinary stuff, as, as there always is with this kind of thing. And I found a few classic comedies that were in there, and they were like $2 to buy them secondhand on DVD. So why wouldn't you? Uh, it's pocket change. It's half a cup of coffee at a good coffee store. So I picked up a whole bunch of stuff, which some of which I'm going to roll into future podcasts. Uh, I also picked up a, a genuine copy of All the President's Men, which I've talked about on a previous Paleo Cinema. But I liked so much, I thought, I'm going to have to get a legit copy of this rather than the somewhat dodgy one that I had. 
and um, I did that. So I've kind of retrofitted the morality of not using pirated copies of movies by picking up a copy of All the President's Men and a number of other things as well. Um, for a cinephile like me, it's getting increasingly interesting and increasingly possible to find classic movies very, very cheaply in second-hand stores. And I like that, of course, because A, it's cheaper, and B, I'm increasingly, and I'm saying increasingly a lot, I realise that, increasingly getting more comfortable with paying for media than I have previously, even though my cash flow is going to be trickling off at some stage in the future. At this stage, paying for movies, particularly when I can get them so cheaply and legitimately, is something I'm comfortable with. And I'm really glad I got the odd couple. Um, I really like the film a lot. I like it more now than I did at the time, even though I didn't have the belly laughs this time that I had the first time I've seen it, because some of the jokes do telegraph themselves slightly. But again, it's Neil Simon, so a lot of it's in the dialogue, in the word choices, in the delivery of that dialogue, particularly by Matthau, who, um, with that kind of hangdog face of his, is fantastically brilliant with Neil Simon's dialogue. Um, and he gets all of the best lines in the movie as well. He's, um, of course, being a wordsmith, um, Oscar is naturally going to be able to use simile and metaphor to great effect. And in fact, the character does do that. It would have been great to see it on stage. Um, I've got some stills. Wikipedia's got some stills of Art Carney and... Um, Walter Matthau in the original stage version but stills never give away the full story one of the great tragedies of theatre is that a lot of the best performances in theatre are never ever recorded on film the best example I know and then this goes back to a previous Paleo Cinema podcast and I know I'm digressing a little bit but I'm going to anyway um, I talked about Carnival in Flanders the um, French movie from the 1940s which was remade as a stage play with Dolores Gray in the 1950s there's a tiny bit of footage of one or two of the stage numbers but everybody who saw Carnival in Flanders as the musical on Broadway said it was fantastic didn't last very long. I think it may have been eight performances or something like that. But uh, the people who saw it said it was one of the best stage experiences and one of the best musical experiences they'd ever saw. Nobody had time to record it. Even the soundtrack album wasn't recorded because the move, the stage play wasn't a success. And um, there have been a couple of people since that have recorded some of the songs from the play. But one of the great tragedies is good performances on stage in the past never really got you know, um, preserved for posterity. And that's a real shame. And it might have been fun to compare and contrast Jack Lemmon as Felix and Tony Randall as Felix with Art Carney as Felix. So just seeing the way different actors interpret roles is, from my viewpoint, as a, as a lover of acting, interesting to see and uh just the little bits that are different the little bits that are put together um you know the what deliveries of lines done differently is kind of cool um now the, i should talk about the director gene Sachs, who directed this um this movie he also did a lot of stage stuff he um was an actor as well as a director he was in um the original version of south pacific 
the South Pacific. And he was in a shot in the duck, the movie that introduced the Pink Panther and Inspector Clouseau. A Thousand Clowns. Um, he played Jack Lemmon's brother in the screen adaptation of The Prisoner of Second Avenue and was in a movie called Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman. But um, he directed some pretty good movies in his day. Uh, a lot of them adapted from Broadway plays. Barefoot in the Park with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, he directed. Or oh, the odd couple, of course, Cactus Flower with Goldie Horn and Walter Matthau. I think it was with Walter Matthau. Last of the Red Hot Lovers with um, Alan Arkin, the really bad movie version of Mame with Lucille Ball, he directed. Brighton Beach Memoirs, which is good, a fine romance, and a 1995 TV production of Bye Bye Birdie. So, um, let's just see. Yeah, it was Walter Matthau and Ingrid Bergman with Goldie Horn and Cactus Flower. I really should re-watch that movie. But anyway, just to wrap up The Odd Couple, it's worth going back and visiting this one. If you get a chance to and have the access to it, definitely see it. It's um, it's not too long. Uh, a lot of it's in the apartment of um, Felix and Oscar. But they expanded it out with some outside scenes and some street stuff, which gives you that kind of location um, porn of seeing bits of New York at the time. Uh, and I always love that. It doesn't matter where it is. If something's shot on location and the movies say before 1980, I always look at the backgrounds as much as possible and just see the way cars were and the way people dressed and the way buildings were and the way advertising on buildings was. And all of those other little bits and pieces, how often people smoked, there were a lot more smoking in the past. All of those little bits and pieces I love because while you've got a fictional thing happening in the foreground with a movie, behind that is documentary footage of a city. And that's one of the great joys of location shooting and um, locations at the time is to see those things that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. A lot of Ealing comedies, a lot of British comedies of the 1950s in particular show you post-war Britain with a clarity you don't get from a lot of other footage that's around because it was filmed in colour whereas a lot of the British Pathé documentary footage of the time was done in black and white. But uh, anyway, I really enjoyed The Odd Couple. It was a lot of fun to watch. I'm probably going to watch it again in the next year or so. It's that good. I really want to revisit that and um, enjoy it all over again. But uh, I can't speak about it highly enough. It was a lot of fun. I can't find a flaw with it. And I do love the Pigeon Sisters. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. And then we're going to get to something which has got a bit more gore in it in it a bit more nudity and a lot more swearing including the first use of the f word in a major hollywood motion picture and that is mash robert altman's adaptation of richard hooker's novel novel sorry from 1970 starring elliot gould and donald sutherland a united states army field hospital somewhere near the front lines this place out. See what the nurses are like. That one, the sultry bitch with the fire in her eyes. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Who are those men? Friends of yours, Mirai? I think you will find these accommodating. They're quite dry. Don't you use olives? We do have to make certain concessions to the war. We're three miles from the front line. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. But did they take advantage of it? Yes. 
A motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them. What are you two hoodlums doing in this hospital? Well, what's the matter with her today? Look, Mother, I want to go to work in one hour. We are the pros from Dover. Somebody get that dirty old man out of this operating theater. And then give me at least one nurse who knows how to work in close without getting her tits in my way. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. His will be done. Oh, Fred. Oh, Fred, my lips are hot. Oh, kiss my heart. We have got to share this with the rest of us. What the hell is that? Oh, Frank, Frank. Frank, Frank. Wait a second. Wait a second. What is it? What is it? Turn the light off. check with the military vicar's office. You see, I cannot give absolution to a man who is about to commit suicide. Do you have any particular method that you'd recommend? Black capsule. Black capsule. Suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. Okay, on to MASH. Everybody knows the TV series, so I'm going to skip over that as much as I possibly can. It went much longer than the Korean War ever did. It was very well regarded uh, and has been on television rotation ever since to the point of nausea. Um, <laughs> with so many episodes of MASH have been seen by so many people so many times. It's kind of... Um, well, it's like a record that's been played too often and the grooves have got scratched a fuck by the needle. That's how I feel about Master TV series. It was great in its day, but ever since then, it's been a cash cow for cheap television stations uh, because I knew they'd get a certain amount of audience by putting it on. Nonetheless, it's always good to go back to original sources in the 1970 movie directed by Robert Altman, uh, based on a novel in 1968 by Richard Hooker, which was a pen name for a former military surgeon, Dr. H. Richard Hornberger and a writer, W.C. Hines. Um, now, the novel is very different from the movie. Um, Altman had a much more improvisational style to his work, and the movie is structured as a series of chronological vignettes in the life of the um, doctors and ancillary personnel at the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in 1951 during the Korean War, which is only a few miles from the front lines. And um, the interesting thing, and I've done a little bit of background on this, um, the doctors at MASH units in the Korean War were mostly in their early in their 20s. They had little um, advanced surgical training, and a unit could see as many as a 1,000 casualties a day. So they were churning through these people crazily. 
And um, this one surgeon said, long periods when not much of anything happened. Um, and then suddenly everything went to hell when there was an advance in the Korean War, which was back and forth across the border. It was a meat grinder of a war. Then suddenly they'd be crazy busy and had to make life and death choices on the spur of the moment, sometimes while very fatigued after very, very long shifts. So that was the background of it. And to make a comedy based on that wasn't wasn't something you could instinctively think of. Serious drama, perhaps, but a comedy. The whole idea of making it a comedy was this was such an insane and life-crushing situation that the only rational way to manage it was through humour. And yeah, you, you can see that um, battlefield humour is something of itself. It happened during the First World War with Australian soldiers where at places like Gallipoli, there'd be a hand of a corpse sticking out of the side of a trench that had been buried and then the trench had to go where it was. And all the soldiers going past would shake its hand for luck. That kind of stuff happened all the time in various military areas. And um, even though I understand it, it's something that only people who have lived through it can really understand the humour of that. As I said, it's a bunch of chronological vignettes. Uh, The cast on this one is really incredibly good. I, I really like the cast. One character I don't like, but I do like the actor. Uh, we've got Donald Sutherland playing Hawkeye Pierce, Elliot Gould as Trapper John McIntyre, another surgeon who's a chest expert, Tom Skerritt as Duke Forrest. Um, I don't like his character because he's racist. Sally Kellerman as Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, Robert Duval as Frank Burns, Roger Bowens playing Henry Blake, the um, CEO of the MASH unit, uh, René Abergenois as um, Father John Patrick Dago Red Malkehi. Now, the racial epithet Dago Red doesn't relate to him being either a communist or an Italian. They call the, um, the chaplain Dago Red because of the cheap bread wine was used as a sacrament, um, which was known racially, um, insensitively, at the time as Dago Red. So he gets the name of Dago Red. you got Joanne Flew playing Dish, um, the girlfriend of Donald Sutherland's character Hawkeye. John Shuck as Walter Wodalski, the painless dentist, who's the best equipped dentist in Korea because he has an enormous dick. Carl Gottlieb playing um, Ugly John Black. Now, Carl Gottlieb wrote the screenplay for Jaws. And in yet in this we see him as an actor. There are a couple of other people in there. Of course, you've got Gary Berghoff playing Radar O'Reilly, a role that he continued in the TV series. He's the only person that moved over to the TV series. We've got Fred Williamson in his first acting role playing Oliver Harmon and in inverted commas, Spear Chucker Jones, who's an ex-football player surgeon, um, a man of colour. The reason they call him Spear Chucker apparently is that he threw javelin at college, but it's a racial epithet and we, we'll leave it at that. You got Michael Murphy in there um, as a doctor that they, um, Trapper and Hawkeye meet in Japan. And the other person I really like in this, uh, by the way, um, apparently Sylvester Stallone was in there somewhere as a as an extra, as a soldier. But the other person I like is the sergeant who sits in the jib going, goddamn army all the time. That's played by Bobby Troop. Now, Bobby Troop was a jazz pianist and singer who was married to Julie London. 
And he's the guy who wrote the song Route 66. And he gets this role where he gets basically four words of dialogue repeated in various bits of the movie. Uh, it's interesting seeing Bobby Troop in there. <laughs> just uh, Maybe he was a friend of Altman's and he came in just to do the role. But um, Robert Altman, of course, director we know from a number of incredibly fine American movies. Uh, before this, he hadn't had a very distinguished career. He did a 1968 astronaut movie called Countdown with James Kahn, that cold day in the park with Sandy Dennis. But afterwards, he did things like Brewster McCloud, Bacate and Mrs. Miller, The Long Goodbye, which again he did with um, Ilya Gould, Thieves Like Us, California Split, Nashville. A Wedding, um, he did the horrible Popeye movie, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, the O.C. and Stiggs movie, and then in 1992 he had a resurgence with The Player and Shortcuts and Predator Porter, uh, Dr. T and the Women, Gosford Park, and his last movie in 2006 was A Prairie Home Companion. So Altman was great. He had an improvisational style. He did that thing that they first did in American cinema in My Girl Friday with overlapping dialogue, people talking over each other, and you kind of pick what you can out of it. There are, there are times in MASH where you've got four or five conversations going on at once, and you just got to kind of get the sense of it from that and not try to focus too much on one conversation or you miss a little bit from the other. But it sounds more realistic and more real life. Anyone that's been at a dinner party knows that there are two or three conversations going on at once, and you kind of got to pick little bits of it out like a smorgasbord but um yeah the characters in this um i'll I'll deal with the stuff that i didn't like the stuff that's dated in this movie since then the way that um margaret houlihan's handled in the movie is pretty bad she's um regular army and she's very kind of formal and stiff at the start but eventually um comes to be part of the gang but the sexual harassment that goes on with her where they kind of pull down the curtain while she's having it, pull down the canvas while she's having a shower and they put the PA system underneath the bed where her and Frank Burns are fucking. Um, that kind of stuff doesn't play well to a modern audience. At the time it was seen as funny, but these days it just doesn't work. Now, the character of Frank Burns doesn't appear all the way through the film. Duval came in, he's only in there for about half the film. And we... There's a more clear line on the morality of them dealing with Frank Burns in the fact that he's insensitive to other people in this very hard environment and he's not a very good doctor. He's dangerous to his patients. And so Hawkeye, Trapper and Duke arrange for him to be driven nuts, basically, by um, teasing him and prodding him and coercing him. He's a hypocritical character. He's incredibly religious on one side. He's having an affair with Margaret Houlihan on the other side. And he doesn't have a very Christian attitude to other people. So that hypocrisy and the danger of him continuing at the MASH unit as a doctor are the clear and obvious moral reasons why Trapper, um, Duke and Hawkeye decide to um, get rid of him. So that part's uh, you know, a lot less morally ambiguous and repugnant than the Margaret Houlihan stuff. Then you've got the issue of um, Cap- the painless pole, the dentist, played by John Chuck, who, um, while making love, becomes impotent and because he's got an enormous penis... He decides that he's he may be gay because he came up impotent once. He's never happened to him before. And his self-image is wrapped up in this. So 
his fellow doctors decide that what they're going to do is fake a suicide for him, which is where the song Suicide is Painless comes in. Through early morning fog I see Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see Suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave it If I please And we all know the upshot of um, Painless's Suicide Which um, has a very life-affirming upshot I'm not going to do a spoiler if you haven't seen the movie but it is kind of nice, and there's a little coda that with Joanne Flug's character, um, Dish, as she um, boards a helicopter to go home. That's kind of fun and interesting. And, um, yeah, it shows that it's a very different world when you're living with life-and-death situations each time. And it has its own morality, which is not the same as the morality of the general world around it. And that's one of the things that this movie kind of demonstrates, is that the kind of um, little hothouse world of the mass unit has its own ways of dealing with some pretty hard-to-deal-with situations. And I think that's one of the overwhelming themes that comes out of Altman's movie, is that we ask incredible things of these people, and therefore they have to go to extraordinary lengths in which to cope with those things. Now, there's no particularly strong um, character arcs in the film for anybody, except maybe Margaret Houlihan. I mean, the fact that she starts out as a very tight-laced and strict and formal army nurse, who's a very good nurse and is acknowledged by a number of the doctors in the movie as well. She's very, very good at what she does. But her idea of army discipline breaks down and is, is transmuted by the, her experiences in the mass unit and the day-to-day um, horrors that these people have to live with. And, you know, that, that's as it should be. Of course, you've got the anti-authoritarian aspect of the movie as well, which, given that it's 1970, there's still conscription, America's still in Vietnam. That informs a lot of what goes on in the film and um, it's very kind of counter authoritarian in a lot of ways i mean the the situations there the doctors have to be there in order to treat the soldiers the fact that this war's going on at all is a horrible and nasty thing run by old men thousands of miles away as way too often wars are but at the grassroots people cope as best they can and in any way they can to live with those things uh there's some pretty gory bits in there You, you don't actually see a lot of blood and guts but there's enough there. There's a scene with one guy who's got a, a neck wound, which is a bit of arterial spray about it, and um, Donald Sutherland's character, Hawkeye's handling that. Um, it's a lot more sanguine than the TV series, of course, and a lot more adult. You've got to remember the TV series came out of 1970s, American television, which was as prudish as fuck. It really didn't um have the freedoms and and the lack of censorship and the lack of oversight by um the authorities to be able to do things they they had a constant war just to get as much as they got out of that tv series and um 
there there were constant battles just to get something remotely realistic and remotely non-white bread mainstream out of that series, and that that that's the kind of fucked up thing that censorship does. It it inhibits arts. It inhibits the truth. It inhibits people tell stories in a way that um, is acceptable to adults in a sense. Dumbing down drama and dumbing down fiction never, never works in the long term. All it does is pisses people off and they go elsewhere to look for the the stuff they want to see. Now, the books are mash, apparently. There are about 15 or 16 of them. Some of them were written by the original guy, but most of them weren't, and none of them were very good. In fact, Altman said the original novel wasn't very good. And so he and Ring Lardner Jr., who did the script, had to mess around with it. And even so, there were some subplots from the original script which were lost in the editing process, particularly involving a young North, uh, South Korean guy called Hojon, who we see in some parts of the film, and who has his own story arc as he joins the South Korean army, which never actually plays out in the movie, though we do see him one final time, but we don't know that it's him. And if you uh, listen to the Blu-ray, which I listen to the Blu-ray commentary by Robert Altman, a lot of that backstory for Hojon, amongst the other characters, is fleshed out. But um, at the time, it was a, it was quite a transgressive movie, and for the fact that it, it did show as much blood and guts as it is, as it did, and for the first use of the word fucking in a mainstream Hollywood movie. It's actually done by John Shuck playing um, the painless polar dentist in a football game vignette at the end of the film. And it was, you know, people were gasping in the cinemas to hear someone on the screen say fucking, but indeed John Shuck, who's still alive and um, still around. And um, there's an interview with him on YouTube where he just talks about being the first person to say fucking <laughs> Hollywood screen history. And he's quite um, amused and, and chuffed by the fact that he did so. Uh, it was an improvised moment where Altman said to him, say something to, to piss him off. And he does. And it stayed in the movie. But that just goes to show how much movies have changed since 1970. If one use of the word fucking in a movie could be seen as shocking and transgressive and a breakthrough thing, it's a kind of like... In the 1964 movie The Porn Broker with Rod Steiger, which is another movie that kind of broke taboos in the fact that there's a topless scene in it. It was the first mainstream, main, main studio Hollywood movie to show a topless woman. Um, that was seen as incredibly transgressive. And that's the way that the um, production code was broken in little moments of importance where in this pawnbroker, there's a strong reason for the nudity that we have in that movie. And in this movie, the fact that um, Walter the dentist says fucking is a very funny moment in the film. But um, it's those little moments that break down those barriers of censorship and break down those moments of taboo to allow filmmakers um, more freedom in what they do now to the extent that they have freedom for things these days with accountants running studios and giant corporations having the means of production to a certain extent there's that threat again of it but um, you know 
with the streaming services, there's less taboo and um, restriction than there was on the old broadcast frequencies. And so I don't think we're going to retreat from uh, the freedoms that have been earned by people like Robert Altman in MASH by um, showing this movie. Now, I think I think it's a bit of an undisciplined movie in some ways because I think that the vignette structure kind of works, but the overlapping dialogue and the wandering around, it, it's kind of, um, because this is fairly early in the full-fledged career of Altman, it's got less discipline than, say, a movie like McCabe and Mrs. Miller and a bunch of his other subsequent movies, The Long Goodbye, which has a necessary structure because it's a detective movie. In this one, um, I think chaos is part of it. The chaos of the um, mass unit is probably being demonstrated by the overlapping dialogue and people wandering hither and thither, doing things and saying things and all that kind of thing. It's something that... Um, kind of informs our knowledge of the world these people are living in and yet from um, an audience viewpoint after a while it gets a bit muddy it doesn't, like it does the camp Uh, there's a lot of mud in the mass unit camp but it kind of muddies the narrative a little bit and we don't get the clear arc of what Hawkeye's feeling about certain things, what Travis feeling about certain things we get a little bit of what Duke feels about certain things but there's no kind of depth of character for these people so that when Duke and Hawkeye are leaving the mass unit, that doesn't have the emotional punch that it might have had the characters been allowed to be shown a little more in depth than they were. So that's, that's, I think, the main weakness. But again, it's because it's the first, in a sense, it's the first big film that Altman did, really big film. Uh, apart from Countdown, which, again, was a studio film and a lot more structured. But it really, um, I think later on, he corrected those those kind of weaknesses in what he did. But in MASH, they just sit there and watching it and reflecting on it a day after watching it. We don't have a clear sense of who Hawkeye is, except through the Alan Alder iteration of it, and who Trapper is, except, of course, through the Wayne uh, Rogers version of it. But, um, yeah, it's it's one of those films where I like it a lot. I like how ugly Duval's Frank Burns is, and how unremittingly coarse and, and nasty he is. Um, Duval really does nail that one. I like the character arc for Margaret Houlihan, where she kind of becomes her best self in a way by relaxing from military discipline and becoming um, more human in a way, rather than a piece of a bureaucracy. I like that arc. I like um, Rene Abergenois's Dago Red. Uh, I really like John Shuck because I love John Shuck's voice. He's got that deep, resonant voice which served him well when he played a Klingon in a Star Trek movie. But in this one, um, his character really does have some moments. And I like Elliot Gould in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in. Donald Sutherland as well. Though we do have a moment, if you listen carefully in Donald Sutherland, there's a moment where he reflects his Canadian background by saying a boot rather than about. But I'll leave you to find that one. But just to kind of nail it down, MASH, it's a good film to rewatch. I, I like the fact that it was a movie that broke taboos in a lot of ways. 
Um, leaving aside the, the stuff that I found problematic in it, of which there was a little bit. Um, I like the actors in there. I like the ensemble. Uh, it's led on to the TV series, which was incredibly highly regarded, but very much overused in television. And it shows the start of the major career of uh, one of the most interesting American filmmakers of the 20th century. So that's about it this time around. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And again, thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreon supporters who support the podcast via Patreon and um, pay for the hosting of the podcast and let me get movies occasionally to talk about on the podcast. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema, as indeed all of the people I'm about to mention in the credits do, because you get a credit if you support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. So I'm going to play the credits. The carries aren't still aren't in the credits. I fixed the front end of the podcast by redoing the narration at the start, but I haven't fixed the credits yet. I will do so because I now have the free time to do it. But anyway, I'm going to be back next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast in two weeks of the Paleo Cinema podcast. Look after yourselves. Take care. If you're in Texas, stay dry for fuck's sake and stay out of those floodwaters. And I hope everything's going well for people, including our good friend Dave Mack. And I'll be back soon with another podcast. And thanks again to the two Kerrys who don't yet have their titles in the credits. Take care. I'll talk to you very soon. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Carrie, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.